Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. You know, we're going to be talking about, you know, really building a rocket ship and now being, you know, on his way to space. I mean, it's unbelievable what they're doing. So I think that you're going to find this episode super inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Daniel Kashab. Welcome to the show. My pleasure being here, Alejandro. Thank you so much. So, so, so Daniel, so give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Because I know that, uh, you know, although you are, you're like half Lebanese, half German, you know, at this point, you know, you had a really interesting upbringing. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? You know, I think I grew up in the very south of Germany, close to the Alps. On the one, one side of my family, kind of, you know, being really like Bavarian Christian. And on the other side of my family, really Lebanese, Muslim. And so... It was a pretty diverse, diverse upbringing, and I, and I think I really only realized that once I was much older, that kind of growing up between two cultures gave me a lot of, lot of understanding, um, and I think also a lot of, lot, of, lot of ease compared to the German rigidness. I think it enables me until today, uh, but overall, it was a, was a lot of fun, I believe, growing up between those two. So I guess uh, for you, you know, it was uh, interesting there because, I mean, you ended up going to school later on. And, and it sounds like, you know, you had the entrepreneurship in you because very early on you got, you got going, you know, with the whole thing of entrepreneurship. So how did you get, you know, that bug in and how did you, you know, like come about creating, you know, like that first company that you guys did too, you know, which was, you know, more like in, in school, but it was a social network. So, so, I mean, did you have anyone in your family that was an entrepreneur or, or how did you get that, you know, businessy, you know, drive? Yeah. So I, I think maybe very different than tech entrepreneurs, but nevertheless, my parents and my grandparents, and they had all been entrepreneurs in, in some ways. And so my, my grandfather had like, a, had like a butcher that also worked in later on. My mom started a business together with, uh, with my dad and started like another business uh, later on. And, 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 and those were all very different kind of businesses, right? And on my, on my dad's side is where usually Lebanese emigrants and, and they were famous usually for doing like used car dealerships, used, used truck dealerships. And so those were not techie business at all and maybe not scaled businesses either. But nevertheless, they were entrepreneurs and they made something out of, out of nothing just by like hard work and, and conviction. And I think I just grew up having, having that as my only role model. And I think so for me, there was, there was never even another option other than starting a company. So then let's talk about that. Let's talk about your first, uh, you know, business. You did yeah. that in school. So how did the idea of the social network, you know, come about? I mean, obviously, it, it was obviously, you know, back in 07, you know, the, the probably the social media space was not as developed. Mobile was not here. You know, probably you even had to mail your picture somewhere, you know, to have it posted, you know, like back in the days. So, um, yeah, how was that? That was a very interesting time because I actually met back then my, my co-founder at, at school, Jonas, and we were, you know, maybe in like ninth grade. And he at that time just taught himself how, how to code. And 
he was like creating this like really interesting network where you could essentially have have friends um where you could like post pictures you know of the parties that eventually happened on the weekend and and back then there were a couple of social networks out there right and none of them was dominant really and i think in particular the ones in germany were just like very slow and so he said okay like look if we can build technology that at least is fast and responsive people would like use it more um, and so we started and then at some point, you know, more and more social networks came and the question was more okay, like, how do you differentiate yourself? And so for us at that time, it kind of felt natural. All right. Like you have a, you have a group of friends that you're on the same network with, you can create, um, kind of like events, you know, you can invite them to your, to your home party or things like this. But we said, okay, actually you should be able to, to book a restaurant from that network. And then directly invite your friends that are also on that social network to your to your reservation, and that that was kind of the concept, and that's how we continued. And I remember we we grew very early on. We had um, with like a really like colorful corporate identity, a colorful brand, and we just went through the city center of Munich and handed out flyers, and that's kind of how we really got our first probably five six thousand users on it. And so so that was a fun experience, I would say. It felt so more like a project and less than a business. I think we never looked through it through a business lens, um, but it was a lot of fun, and I think we learned a bunch. And I think that you know, like one of the one of the cool things here is that it was early on in your career. You were very young, um, and as they say, you either succeed or you learn. So the company ended up winding down. And I guess what was the biggest lesson that you took away from from that experience? So I think there were, there were probably three. I think the first one is like co-founding a company with someone else is probably more than a marriage because it's very hard to, to solve if there's a problem for it. And so you need to be really be able at all times, particularly in tough times, because they'll come no matter how good you are, to be able to look into each other's eyes and to make good decisions that always prioritize the company, never your personal needs. I think the second thing is that um, in the beginning, just do whatever it takes to grow. Yeah, until you're not live, until you not have the first traction, you're a nobody. And by whatever it takes, I mean going out there and flyering in the city center for a social network is about as far away as you can get to how you know Facebook later on grew, or Instagram later on grew, or TikTok is growing today. But nevertheless, sometimes you kind of need to do those manual things, those things that don't don't scale to get your initial traction. And then um, maybe lastly, yeah, it's just all about user value. You can have a great brand, um, you can have a great go-to-market, you can even have a you know, well-built and designed product. But the product that just provides the most value to your users is the one that's going to win. And that can be in terms of features, you know, that can be in terms of speed, that can be in terms of the network effects, you know, who other people are using it. So in the end of the day, it's just about value, value, value. And there's, there's, there's very little that can be hide behind that. Now, in your case, after this, what happened is you went to the army. I'm sure you got some good discipline. And, uh, and, and I mean, incredible experience, I'm sure that was. But then eventually, you know, you, you go out of that, you do international business, and then you, while you were there, you were doing your internship too at the uh, Rocket Internet, you know, which is this uh, kind of like, uh, how, how, would you, how would you define Rocket Internet for the people that are listening to really understand what Rocket Internet is? Yeah, so, so Rocket Internet was a company builder 
but a really scaled and successful one. So I'll give you a couple of the examples. Yeah. Three of the companies that um, that were built by a rocket ended up today in, in the German DAX, yeah, kind of the German blue chip index, if you want. So um, maybe the most famous one being HelloFresh or Zalando, Delivery Heroes there. Also a very large exit we did selling the Amazon of Southeast Asia to Alibaba for one and a half billion. The, the first tech IPO ever out of Africa um, was Jumia, and we listed that in, uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. And so we really built like very scaled businesses and exit them across all major consumer categories and in all, um, in all geographies. And the business model was really to look at businesses that had worked elsewhere and were innovated elsewhere, like for example, the US, and to bring them to geographies where they had not, not been before. And I found that very interesting for, for two reasons. The, the first thing that was, I mean, I wanted to start my own company and I wanted to learn how to start and scale a business. And I found that a perfect place to learn. Um, I think that's the first reason why I went there. The second was that the company in the end of the day was very emerging market focused. And I always like kind of the pragmatism that, that you need in order to succeed in emerging markets. I like the additional layer of complexity. Um, I like the, the amount of risk that is involved if you want to succeed in emerging markets. And, and that's, that's kind of where I went there. And in your case, too, I mean, you, you traveled quite a bit, uh, you know, during this time. I mean, you went to Colombia, you went to South Africa. I guess from all these travels, what opened up for you? Because I'm sure that, you know, there was like a different perspective there, too, when, when you're able to travel a little bit and see that there is life outside of Germany. I always enjoyed working in many different, different countries because I think by working, you learn so much more than, than just by traveling because you actually, you're working day to day together, solving problems with the people that are local to the particular country. And not only that you learn how to work in different cultures, but more than, you know, learning what's different, you actually learn like, like what's fundamentally the same. And fundamentally, what I learned is that people want to be happy no matter where you are. And sometimes they have different strategies of, of getting there. And the second thing I learned, usually people have more or less the same desires and the same problems no matter where you are at different scales, you know, at the different sizes of the problems. But usually it's, it's a similar one. And and I think that was, that was really eye-opening because um, I think that when you build, for example, an online fashion store like, like Zalando, that's a business that's operating across Europe. And, and we started that, for example, in, in South Africa. In the end of the day, the, the people wanted the same thing. You know? They wanted a large assortment. They wanted a generous return policy. They wanted trustworthy online payment. Now, they wanted the same thing, but all of these things, they were executed differently. So for example, a trustworthy return policy might mean in Europe that you have 100 days you know, to put a badge on your, uh, on, your, on your box and like send it back and you kind of trust the company to tra transfer you the money back. Now, that is not necessarily a given when you start a company like that out of whatever, South, South Africa or Colombia, for example. So you just got to be pragmatic about it. You build your own delivery fleet. You have a driver coming, coming to your home to give you the box, the pair of shoes, and the driver's going to tell you you have 50 minutes to try them on. You go inside, you try them on. You like them, you pay the driver. The driver con continues. You don't like them. You just hand them back, and, and no transactions happen, happen in the first place. And, and, and it just needs this pragmatism to succeed um, 
solve, but solving usually always the same problems. And I believe that pragmatism is just a very important, a very important business lesson. Um, so there were a lot of learnings, in fact, working in different countries. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and obviously working at Rocket Internet, you got to see, you know, all types of companies launching on every category that you can think of. So I guess, you know, when it comes to idea, validation, launch and scale, what would you say from from being involved with so many companies, you know, during this time that you spent, you know, at Rocket, you know, what would you say, you know, were your biggest takeaways? Because, I mean, you were there for over five years and that in startup, you know, dog years is a ton of time. So uh, what were your major lessons, you know, around those things? I think you have to be bold. And you have to be accepting that boldness has a com component of, of making mistakes. And I believe that is the fastest way to learning because at the end of the day, you're doing something that in many cases has not been done before. And probably in all cases, you have not done before. And, and the best way to do so is, is just to start, not to overthink and run. I remember we had a launch process and kind of before we started, building, we had like one week to decide which business model, how to monetize, which countries are gonna, we, we, we're going to expand to. Because I said, look, the fast way of learning is, is, is just to go out there to launch, to get customer feedback. And so, so, so just be bold and run. I think the, the second learning was that there is naturally parts of the business that people, let's say, have more respect of than others. So usually geographical expansion and going to another countries is something that you know many people, many companies consider complex endeavor. But maybe when it comes to like building product, um, they think it's less complex because you just ship a first feature, you go out there, you speak to users and you try. It's kind of like a low investment. But the same thing you can do with expansion actually too. When we, when we expanded, we sometimes sent like two people and we said, okay, like, look, let's, let's do it for three weeks. Let's speak to users. Let's see if like our value prop works there. And if it works great, we invest. And if it doesn't work, let's, let's, let's move on. And so I, I think, I think that was important. Um, I think the, the best lesson was, however, that, that I believe that most people in their lives, they want to go on a mission. Many don't know of that, but nevertheless, they want to go on a mission. And in many ways, the role of the leader and the role of the company is, is, is to provide that mission, you know, and kind of like a, just a place where people can give their everything, where people can excel, where people learn, where people also are allowed to do, are allowed to do mistakes. And I just, I just think it creates a great culture in which just everyone is like growing really fast. And I think. We managed to pull it off over and over again. And, uh, and I think just that like needing to provide a mission for people to excel and the people actually want it very intrinsically, I think was a, probably the biggest learning. So let's talk about going on a mission for you because eventually you decided that it was time for you to activate that mission. And uh, you gave your notice and you left the uh, rocket. And all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, on those 14 months where you're trying to really figure out you know, what that mission is going to look like. So at what point do you, I mean, how, how, why did you take that decision? And then also, how did you structure those 14 months to make sure that you were able to find the solution to that problem that you had encountered and to do it in a meaningful way so that, you know, you could really, you know, launch something that, uh, that was sustainable enough? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing we did, so, so, so we left Rocket because said, all right, look, 
um, we're like scared of the challenge, but we're also somewhat confident that we have at least at least learned a, a fundamental skill set on how to build operations, how to build a at least a sim simple simple product, and how to how to at least have tools on how to find product market fit. And so 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 we left, and then we said, all right, let's start something. And our goal was to start something within within three months. That was our initial goal. And then we started, you know, very structuredly, and we had like this super large Excel sheets of on the y-axis with all kinds of business models, you know, like SaaS and marketplace and and so on. And on the y-axis, uh, sorry, the x-axis, um, we had all kinds of different industries. And then you have like this hundred by hundred matrix, and you see, look, essentially, like where is an empty spot? But then the problem is, you know, you're ending up then with Uber for pets. Or with like a marketplace for luxury watches. And why I do think that there you know, might be a business value in those problems, the truth is, me personally, I don't care about these problems. But as a founder, if you're serious about it, you will need to commit to a very long time to this problem. So you better care about it. And so it, it took us probably one, two months to realize, all right, so that's not our approach. We didn't have a better approach either. And so we said, all right, like, let's first do a, do, a, do, a, do, a, do a big reset. So I think we just went a, went a month offline. And I think that just helped me a lot in finding clarity on, on, on what at least I wanted and, and my co-founders too. And we said, look, in the end of the day, we're not looking for an idea. We're looking for a problem. And with two expectations towards that problem. First, it should be a large one. It should be a very large and complex problem, something that keeps us challenged for 20 years, like we want a challenge. And second, an important problem. And why was the important problem because, uh, vital for us is because yeah, you commit for so, uh, so much time. But we also we knew that any company, no matter how good you are, will go through tough patches and we had took away a fair amount of those and i think we, we went went through them sometimes more well sometimes sometimes less but in the end we grow after all of them but in these tough patches you need to be able to stand in front of the team and tell everyone it's particularly important that we that we work hard now that we work as a team that we solve our user problems that we push out value faster and and you will need to reason on why they should do it. And if the reason is not solving for an important problem, then it's just unauthentic. You know, I would have a hard time standing in front of the team and say, you know, team, we need to push extra hard now because it's important that we get more oil out of the ground to like fuel more cars, having more carbon dioxide. So it's, 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 it's an unauthentic thing to do. So we said, let's, let's find an important problem too. And then we started our real search probably three months in looking for large and, and important problems. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike severson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's say fast forward here, you arrived to month 14. What happened there? Yeah. So in the end, very simple. There's not so many large and important problems out there in the first place. Yeah, we be, I believe on, on like the largest level, there's, there's three. There's climate change, there's education, and there's inequality. And all of those three are so large that by definition, they are, they're interconnected. And so we just started, um, we, we looked at all three and we started with climate change and then you dig deeper into climate change and then it's, it's driven by greenhouse gas emissions, and then you look where do those greenhouse gases come from, then you see around one, one fourth, 25% come from energy production, another 25% come from the food system, and then it continues, and then like I believe that the fourth or fifth category of 16% is transport, and then we were like, okay, like, wait, what? Everyone is talking about, you know, electrification of vehicles, but that's only category like five or six, so actually it's like not our largest lever. And, um, and then our ele electricity production, about nuclear fusion, that, that was kind of very, very like a hardware scientific problem. That wasn't us. And that's also not necessarily passionate about it. We are passionate a lot about food. And so we dug into it and dig into the, to the food system part. That is one of the two major contributors to climate change. And the first thing you realize is that 40 to 50% depending on which, which source you look at. So for the take of the sake of today, let's say 50% of all food produced goes to waste, which means that 50% of all of the greenhouse gas that food produce are unnecessary in the first place because it's just waste. It's not feeding anyone. There's no benefit whatsoever. It also means that we're producing double as much food as we need. So, and, and then you kind, of, you, you kind of dig deeper and you find out, all right, how do we produce food? Who's doing that? And there's 540 million farmers around the globe. And in fact, farming is the single largest employer on the, on the planet. And farming happens in particular more in the poorer um, regions on the, um, on, the, on, on the globe. And this is where money is certainly is, is, is not arriving. And if money is not arriving on the farms, then these people cannot afford education and not having access to education, pays into inequality, and so on and so forth. And so these things, things were interconnected. At the same time, um, the largest driver of deforestation is food production, right? Because it burned down Amazon rainforest to create fields to grow food that we end up throwing away half of it. 
the largest driver of extinction of animal species is habitat loss, which is driven by deforestation, and so on and so forth. So it's a very large and interconnected problem. And a secondary and tertiary consequence, there's many, many ripple effects. And so it's sort of like, like, that's something that we're happy to commit 20 years to and will never regret trying to solve that, that problem of, of food waste in the, uh, within the food system. And, and that's how we started. And the question was, okay, like, that's our problem. Now, how do we solve it? And in the end of the day, when you think about the food system, then there's two very important characteristics. The first is that it's a hyper-commoditized market. It's a cucumber, it's a carrot, it's a chicken breast. There's, there's very little to no product differentiation. The second thing is that there's oversupply, right? In fact, there's 50%, 100% too much supply because you throw away 50% of everything that, that we produce, which means you have oversupply and no differentiation in the product. This means it's a buyer's market. The buyers can choose from who they buy and what they buy. They are in absolute control. And so I said, all right, so the buyers have the power, but, but who's behind? And then you do some research and really traveled around the globe from, from US to, to Brazil, to Singapore, um, to Ghana. And, and we found out that between the average restaurant, which is, if you want so, at the end of the supply chain is a buyer of food. And the average producer, you have, an, you have um, on average nine parties in between. You have the supplier that delivers into the restaurant, who buys from the wholesaler, who buys from a distributor, buys from an exporter, from an importer, harvest manager. And, um, and so we said, all right, so if we want to solve that problem, the first thing that we have to do is, is we have to own the demand. Yeah? We have to own the demand that the, that the, that the, um, at the very, big, very end of the supply chain, where the money enters, enters the supply chain. And once we have it, we could kind of build technology that goes deeper and deeper into it. And, and that was kind of our stretch from the beginning. So then how are you guys making money for, for the people yeah. that are listening to really get, you know, how you guys extract value from that value that you bring to the table? Yeah. So, so the first two years of Choke, we're five years old now. We only build a tool for restaurants. Why did we do that? Because how do restaurants order their ingredients today? So I assume I'm a chef. Then I work until 11 p.m., I clean the kitchen, and then I sit down and I call, on, if I'm in the U.S., on average six different suppliers, and I leave them a voicemail. And I say, hey, this is Daniel, you know, from like the, the beer garden, and my client number is one to three, and I have five limes and 20 tomatoes and a, and a pound of, of chicken breast, and I hang up. And I'm like, did I just order the limes? So it's kind of like a bad process for me. And on the other side, there's a supplier and the large wholesale markets on the planet, in which you have been every, every city between 600 and 1,500 of them. And they're going to listen to this voicemail. It's 3 a.m. in the morning when they start working and I type things into the system. Now, there's a couple of problems. The first one is I have a heavy accent, let's say being a German chef in New York, hard to understand. Then I, second, I just order tomatoes. Okay, but did I actually desire oxhart tomatoes or cherry tomatoes or what do I actually want? So naturally, a lot of problems occur. And so we said, all right, the first two years, we just build a technology for restaurants that just enables them to order within five minutes and have a paper trail, have analytics, have integrated inventory and things like this. And after two years of just sending email orders to suppliers, we started building software for the suppliers. 
And at that point, we got attention of the suppliers because we had the buyers on the platform already. Right? We had that demand. At that point, we were probably doing 200, 300 million in GMV. And when you, when you do this kind of amount of GMV on the platform, you certainly have the attention of suppliers. And, and this, as you can see, is already how the playbook like, worked out well by owning the demand. And then you get the attention of the supply. And then we started building for the suppliers quite a significant software suite. And today we automate most of the processes from the inventory, their assortment, their offers, their um, food, food waste reduction, you know, because they can just sell off, for example, end of shelf life things. Um, we integrate into the ERP system and, and we just charge a commission um, on all of the products that these suppliers sell on Choco to their restaurants. So we're not a marketplace. We connect the suppliers only to who they already work with. And food, you kind of have like these long-lasting relationships, but we charge nevertheless a a, a commission for, for our value. And, and and obviously this is a capital intensive too, no? So how much capital have you guys raised today, and what has been the the approach on raising it the way that you guys did? Yeah, so we raised three hundred million euros so far. I think that there's there's a couple of things. I think the first thing was that I remembered. Someone told me this at some point, but up until today, I don't know who. And this person told me, at the end of the day, the best way to raise money is to make your company do good um, or do well. And so from day one, we were so hyper-focused just on our numbers um, that for the first two years, we had no advantage of being out there and doing marketing and have a website. We didn't even have a website. We had no social media. We had no LinkedIn. We had nothing just because it gave us focus on finding product market fit and onboarding very manually our first users. But what it gave us is that we had like strong user engagement and retention very early on. And so probably the first 200 million we raised without a deck you know, we had like a monthly update that we would send to our shareholders that was derived from our internal kind of weekly business review numbers, essentially just like growth and retention numbers. And we put them on five, six very ugly slides because we were bad at building slides. And, and we just had them speak, speak for ourselves. And so up until that day, I believe kind of like the act of fundraising is, is kind of secondary. What, what you just need to focus on as a, as a, as a founder is like, making these numbers work out. And I think it's always better to spend 10 hours out there in the field talking to 20 customers and getting the product feedback and investing 10 hours and making your deck more, more beautiful. So I think that's one. I think the second principle that I had learned at Rocket actually is, look, in the end of the day, the probability of a startup to fail is higher than the probability of the startup to succeed. And so in many ways, your job as a founder is to constantly increase the probability of succeeding. And one way to do that, one very vital way, is by having more money on the bank account rather than less because more money just means I have more time to make mistakes. If I have money until tomorrow, I do a mistake today, I have a problem. If I have money until next week and I do a mistake today, I still have time to correct and to learn from it, right? And so I think we always try to raise as early as possible um, we, um, we always looked at, of course, it would, would, would be a fair deal, but I don't think we ever optimized on dilution, um, or, and, and, or on valuation. Um, and, and it took us 
nevertheless, it took us around three years to go from zero to to, to billion billion euro valuation. Um, and I think these were two two very very important principles, and and they served us well. So I can tell you, we raised our Series A from from Bessemer thirty million. Three months later, we raised a Series uh, A two from Coach another thirty million. And back and people ask, it's kind of strange raising two times thirty. Um, but you know, two weeks later, COVID hit, and during COVID, during the lockdowns, restaurants closed. And so all our GMV, all our revenues vanished by 95% within 24 hours. And that's a life-threatening situation for a company that is not even two years old. But at that point in time, we had increased our probability of, of succeeding just by, by taking on more money. And so we could kind of invest anti-cyclically. We did not need to do massive layoffs. We could invest in our product. And we could grow throughout the whole COVID phase. And our competition could not. Um, just by taking this, by following like that rule. And I think that's where it served us well. We had another situation where last April raised uh, another 100 million after having raised 100 million be shortly before that. And same thing, we all know what happened last year. You know, venture funding uh, is, is down by, by massive amounts. Um, everyone's speaking of, of recession with the first bank rounds already. And, and I think we could also like face the current phase just with a, of a very healthy cash balance and just allows us to go through through different situations for a long, long breath if required. I love that. Always say, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Eh? Yeah. I like that uh, that mentality. Now, for the people that are listening to um, to really get a, an idea on the scope and size of Choco today, I mean, anything that uh, that you can share in terms of maybe number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, absolutely. So, so a bit about 400 people. We operate um, across seven countries. That is US, UK, and essentially larger countries in Europe. Um, we headquartered in Berlin, our second largest office in Chicago and in, and in, and in Paris, um, but we have around 12 offices. We process far over, over a billion uh, euro worth of goods. Um, that is several hundred thousand tons of food. Yeah, we have in the tens of thousands of restaurants on the platform. We have around 15,000 suppliers on the platform. That is close to every second supplier across Europe and the U.S. That's impressive. So imagine you go to sleep tonight, Dan, and uh, you wake up in a world where the vision of Choco is fully realized. What does that world look like? The first uh, thing it looks like is, you know, by we will have zero food waste. And or close to zero food waste, and and the effects of this are massive because it means we will have a much greater shot at at reaching our our climate change goals or, or global global warming goals of one and a half degrees. That also means more money arrives with the producer, and as we said before, you know, with 540 million producers on the planet, mostly in the emerging countries on the planet, so more money arrives there. So that's a, that's a major poverty uh, relief. It also means that we will be able to, to grow more diverse foods, right? Today, we only grow 150 species um, that are commercially relevant. Um, and three species make up 60% of world food production. It's rice, um, maize, and, uh, and, and wheat. And that has a couple of negative ripple effects because we you know, degrade our soil, always take the same nutrients out of, uh, out, out of the soil. And, and by creating a food system that is more profitable, we also be able to, to grow more 
biodiversity. Um, and, uh, and I think lastly, hopefully, we can also build mechanisms that um, promote more seasonal, more regional um, consumption of food. Um, so reduce kind of kind of food miles. So, yeah, um, I think it's a very it's a very large endeavor, and it's probably going to take us another fifteen years. But like that's what we're here for. Well, hey, that looks like a beautiful world to me, Daniel. So um, good stuff. Now, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Write me an email, Daniel at dot com. I love that, Daniel. It has been such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for your time, Alejandro. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.